How do you change the healthcare culture? What are rapid cycle improvements? And how does cabbage create change? Welcome to the Transformative Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Chobatar, and I serve as publisher and editor-in-chief of Advent Health Press. We're trying something a bit different with this series. We often create podcasts after a book is released, but this time we're going to share the book's concepts before they're published as a work in progress. Our authors, Dr. Jeffrey Coleman, Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health Orlando, and Daniel Peach, Director of Clinical Transformation at Advent Health Orlando. Today's episode is entitled, An Unstoppable Alliance, Culture and Strategy. Now let's join Jeffrey Coleman and Daniel Peach as they discuss rapid cycle improvements, sustainable change, and cabbage. As a parent, I wanted to have my son take out the garbage regularly. <laughs> so I thought about it. I promised him, I'll give you a dollar every time you take out the garbage. And it worked. I was. He didn't negotiate for more then. Well, <laughs> I was proud of my strategic plan. Then over time, I realized he wasn't really learning the importance of helping the greater good of our family. Taking out the garbage was just a short-term means to an immediate result, a yes. buck. So it kind of sounds like a rapid cycle improvement. Yes. Yeah, so rapid cycle improvement, you identify the problem, you, solve, you try to find a way to solve it through the routine, and uh, that's kind of classic uh, performance improvement or PI strategies. So PI strategies, I think, often work for rapid cycle or short-term improvement. I'm not sure that I think all of us have been involved with PI projects, and you go back months or weeks later, and all the advantage that you that you got has fallen by the wayside. So there, were, there was no yeah. sustainment trend. So transformation requires much more. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. I mean, if if you look at if we talk again about that that widget making that where we we bring in all of those classical um, industrial type processes that are there, and they're great on widget making. You can change that industrial process. You can speed it up. Um, you can change the the assembly practices. You can change the colours if you want. Um, we, we make rapid cycle improvements in healthcare all the time. I mean, if you look at um, just changing the antibiotics that may go out there um, or adjusting slight costs because of it. So they're, they're sort of the examples that we tend to use. And, and there's some benefit to those. We can get those there. But if we look at those sort of multifactorial improvements, if we look at those, those clinical transformations that we need to make, those solutions have to reach across multitude of disciplines. Um, we we tend to do this, and we forget sometimes that that we do this, and we work as a team. Prime example is looking at something like sepsis. Yeah, yeah, sepsis I think is a classic example. Sepsis is the um, overwhelming infection mm -hmm. of the body, and cascades into where the vascular system can't can't um, sustain life. So you go into uh, septic shock. Uh, sepsis, by far, is the number one cause 
of in-hospital death um, in the U.S. and in Western civilization. Half of sepsis is can be like a respiratory pneumonia. Yeah. Um, but sepsis also can be the the exotic, can be Ebola yes. of a of a bloodborne um, virus. It was the old blood poisoning that people used to yeah. to look at, and um, and and it's one of those that's all encompassing, not just that it's systemic in the body and causes problems, but it's all encompassing in a, a healthcare practice that you need a multitude of people to get involved in it. And and that was one of the areas that we we look and we continue to look at. This is not a this is not a solution for next day. This is not changing an antibiotic and magic happens and, and you're done. Yeah, but I but I think if you look at in healthcare, what they had tried to do for sepsis is throwing the kitchen sink at it. So lots yeah. of little, little different PI projects. And they did have some rapid cycle improvement, um, but the sustaining part of it was non-existent. So, yeah, and, we, and we'd focused again on we were given metrics that you had to accomplish. The, the government had an ideal sort of, uh, of parameters they wanted you to work to, and, and there were time limits that were put in there, and there were certain elements that you had to encompass within a certain period of time, but forgot about that in some respects, that patient interaction about who the patient was, where they came from, did they have Ebola, did they have pneumonia, and how do you tweak that on an individual basis to solve? Yeah, so I think the the improvement has to come from a, it's more multidisciplinary. So for example, um, I think we'll learn more about it later, but for sepsis, it's not just at the point of care that you gotta do the right thing. No. um, taking that patient that came into the emergency department with an overwhelming infection, but actually moving the recognition and the starting the treatment Absolutely. to maybe when they got picked up on the street or the um, facility that they're at or their home and having the, uh, the paramedics and the EMTs who are able to recognize those first warning signs and actually starting the fluids and taking some innovative ideas with equipment and practices they already have. And so then having a sepsis alert, but not just an alert, but starting the treatment. And then once they're in the emergency department, it's not just um, a doctor goes to his computer and does an order set or a power plan, but you, it actually, sepsis has a higher mortality rate than a heart attack or a stroke. And you know, we move mountains and fly helicopters when we're treating those. So jumping on sepsis with as soon as it's, um, soon as it's recognized time zero um, with um, uh, doing the appropriate uh, blood cultures, um, doing the the blood test, that's, that's the lactate level, starting the appropriate antibiotics. And there's been zero lives saved by ordering an antibiotic. Yeah, the medicine actually has to be dripping into the veins and going through the uh, circulating through the body, killing the uh, the organisms causing the uh, the overwhelming infection. Um, and then, just as important as the antibiotics is fluid resuscitation. So, doing um, you know, many doctors were always afraid. Ooh, we're going to put them into heart failure, or we're going to put them into kidney failure. Can their body take the the overload of yeah. fluids? And the answer is well. They're going to die if you don't fluid resuscitate them and keep their organs perfusing. So it's more important to give them the fluids for septic patients. And if you top them off a little bit too much, we we certainly know how to treat that.
And, and that, that sort of illustrates one of the points as well, is that it's that empowerment that runs right the way through. It's don't just allocate one task to one person. Don't look at it in a completely focused format. It is a team game. And that team also involves the patient. And, and being able to empower right from day one, so if the patient was in a skilled nursing facility or they were picked up on the side of the road by the paramedics, having them have the opportunity to say, look, you know what, this is not great. And being able to give the heads up, it, it's, um, it's a bit like pulling the fire alarm. And you can sit in a room and smell smoke and you can decide that I've got two courses of action. I can get up, sneak out the door, stand outside and watch the whole building becoming Which gold. may be good for you. Yeah, yeah. You, you get away. Hey, that's fine. But then you can do the right thing and you can stand up, you can pull the fire alarm, you can turn to everyone and say, look, I smell smoke. We need to do something get everyone out. And even if it wasn't a fire, at least the course of action has started. And if you do need to take action, everyone's part of that team. Everyone knows we've got a problem. Everyone knows we're going to deal with it. And the training and the, the skill sets that people have acquired over the years really then comes into play. So you're not then allocating one tidy task for each person. The whole team gets embroiled in it and they then start to look at where the problem is and to resolve that issue and to all fight with the same end and including the patient in there. Yeah. So I think pulling the fire alarm is you don't necessarily have to see a flame burning. You no. can like smell the smoke yeah. or you can just suspect that there's a fire somewhere. So for sepsis, if you know that they have sepsis, that's seeing the flame, or if you just suspect that they do, then pulling the alarm is actually starting that sepsis power plan, that bundled set of orders. And it's not just for you to do the right thing, but it actually sends the communication to all the different team members so they can do their job in the department that you're at, but most importantly, what we found is that also continues the handoff to the inpatient team yep. or to the critical care team up in the ICU. And the ability to just do your job, it, it makes me think of, um, you know, whether you're a Patriots lover or a Patriots hater, um, those, uh, those tend to be the kind of the passionate sides of the, of the aisle. Um, if you think back to the Super Bowl a couple years ago, where they were they were uh, down deep in the weeds in the fourth quarter to um, to the Falcons, and Tom Brady, um, his he didn't do a passionate speech to everybody evoking Vince Lombardi, but he just said, "Do your job." Mm. And so they each player did their job on every single play, and I think the rest is history. So same thing in. Um, in trans transformative healthcare, it's everybody doing their job. It's listening to the front line, empower the front line, hold them accountable with reasonable measures, and that's the lasting change. It's not rapid cycle PI short-term improvement because there's no sustainment plan. No, you've and and what you're doing is you're that that empowerment is correct. You're creating a that that cultural change that. It's not about me just doing my job and creating that short cycle return. It's about me doing that as part of the big team, as creating a cultural change that if I do my job, I'm looking at that bigger picture of what else is encompassed in there and how can I assist and support everyone else, whether it's with sepsis right at the very beginning out on the street or right the way through into ICU. 
everyone has been part of that long part of the team and encompassed within that. And when you have that change in culture, you then reap the big benefits. You then don't just get that short cycle change where everyone jumps on board, they do it for a while, lose focus, drift back to where we were. You then get that sustained, that long-term result that you're looking for. And, that, and that's that's hugely important in medicine now because as we said earlier on, you you get into a cycle of making rapid change. You do these short cycle changes. We reduce the thickness of the material. We get it out the door a lot faster. But then are we missing other things by doing that? Whereas if we looked at it all encompassing and we change the culture that everyone's involved in there, then we start to make that yeah. that role. Yeah. So the most sustainable type of improvement is when there's a change in the culture. When culture and strategy actually work together, yeah. then you reap both short-term and long-term results. Um, it kind of makes me think of another uh, transformative uh, uh, project, uh, cabbage. Coronary hmm. artery bypass uh, graft yeah. um, is, is, to me, an example. If you have uh, culture and strategy working together, um, the change is, um, is dramatic. Yeah. For cabbage, you take a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon who's trained 10 years before they're, um, they're allowed to go off on their own, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> um, so at our hospital... We have um, 10 cardiothoracic surgeons. Uh, they all do about uh, at least um, two a week um, of the uh, isolated cabbages. They do other uh, open heart uh, procedures. And if you look at, at the, the patients that they do the cabbages on, it takes about five hours to do the surgery. Yeah, yeah and, between five and six hours. Yeah, right, and yeah. there's very little variation. The variation of the... No intraoperative time is single digit minutes. So the, the technical part of it is there's very little variation. Others had, um, other healthcare systems had focused on, you know, lean or six sigma for the intraoperative portion. And what we actually found is the, the swing in the variation happens in the pre. So the, uh, the days before you have the, uh, the operation uh, the wide variation in um, stopping blood thinners and um, making sure their nutritional status is optimized and uh, assessment of their frail frailty. Yeah. Um, and that's where the wide variation. So getting the surgeons and the um, nursing staff to discuss, hey, what's the what's the optimal way that we can do to make sure that we're lining up the, give the patient the best, um, uh, the best chance going through this, um, um, you know, very complex uh, operation. You mean, you mean actually get nurses, doctors, and all the staff to sit down and talk about yeah. what they're gonna do? Right, yeah, and, and to follow through and do it. Right. So that's, uh, and then, then hold them accountable with, with the reasonable measures, um, and so feeding them back feeding them back the results. The other, uh, the other paradigm shift was after mm. um, they leave the operating room. Um, or actually, just before they leave the operating room, for years, the anesthesia was, well, I, so I, I call it snow and blow. Yeah. So snow and blow is we, we would give medications, um, you know, whether it's opioids or other medications that knock people out, 
because we, we don't want them to, you know, fear of them waking up during the surgery or different things like that. Um, but we actually, our anesthesiologists were very um, on the ball and forward thinking and actually um, came up with, you know, how do we get the proper amount that doesn't overdo it? And we found that after surgery, instead of, oh, just take it easy for a few days, that the quicker we get you back to your normal function, that we store you back. If you were mowing the lawn when you had your heart attack before you came in and got your cabbage, then the sooner we can get you back to mowing the lawn afterwards um, is actually better for you instead of just, oh, take it easy for a month or two. Yeah, it's almost the if you rest, you rust. Yeah. It, it's it, it's about getting those those patients up and making them part and parcel of that that treatment regime that's there, but but making it about the patient and incorporating all of those team members that yeah. are there. So, so it came down to culture. Yeah, the culture instead of strategy or short term would have done goals, objective activities, but the culture was well, what do we value? Well, we value getting this this patient, getting this person back to their life. And so then what are the practices and behaviors that we want the doctors, the nurses, the physical therapists, the nutritionists to do? So then they were able to focus on that. So day one of surgery, instead of just laying there, you dangle your feet off the bed. Maybe you stand with assistant. You get your tubes and wires pulled at the appropriate time and you get your gut working again with um, a smoothie or whatever yeah. uh, nutrition that you can um, you can tolerate. And so that's that's a big that's a big change in um, uh, healthcare, and it it has to do with uh, relying on culture, not on uh, widget making. And and it's interesting because when when we sat down and we started talking to the nurses and the doctors about it, it's it's things they always want to do. And, and often we find that the systems that are in place to protect patients and to, to, to progress them during any particular difficult time during their life within the hospital often tends to slow the process down and, and, and sort of staggers it. It happens, but it happens eventually. And having that cultural shift is not just focused on the clinical staff that's there, but it's working on the administrative staff as well to understand that these patients are going to progress because the patient's progressing, not because they're being pushed because the system is driving it forward or technology says this is day one, you should be at this stage. It's about the patient reaching their goals and having the patient aligned with what the clinical staff are looking to achieve, what the patient wants to achieve, and to help drive that forward. Yeah, it's actually paradoxical, and it, sometimes it takes, it takes some explanation to, yeah. uh, uh, to leaders. Um, often the strategy that administrators have is beds and heads, mm. but when it's actually, this patient's actually going to get better quicker and get back to their normal and get into their outpatient cardiac rehab. Those are all good things. And then guess what? You can take care of another patient that um, has their time of need. Yeah. Using culture uh, to change is going to have long-term effects. Yes. Short-term strategies were helpful in the game plan for cabbage surgery and also for sepsis. But the they made a huge difference when they were both when they were wo woven into the long-term culture shift and then the change lives on indefinitely no i i agree uh, and um there's got to be a way of helping drive that change there's got to be a way of 
of keeping it moving and to keep that sustain element on there. Yeah. Well, the change it doesn't it doesn't happen because of quarterly executive summits. No. It doesn't happen because of teams of consultants, piles of books, piles of data. Our change started with three people, maybe three nondescript people, <laughs> three nondescript, uh, three people in a nondescript office who used their creativity and who used a simple eight-step process. That concludes today's episode of Transformative Healthcare, a limited edition, 14-part podcast series. I've been your host, Todd Chobatar. To discover other great resources to help you feel whole in mind, body, and spirit, please visit us at adventhealthpress.com. And while you're there, remember to sign up for our free newsletter that includes healthy living tips, leadership wisdom, and regular giveaways. Be sure to tune in for our next episode where Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach will be discussing Three Rebels in a Corner, The Chest Pain Project, and Eight Proven Steps That Can Change Everything for Good. Thanks for joining us.